This is Surviving Ministry, conversations designed to help you last longer and grow stronger in ministry. I'm your host, Seth Stevens. Jan walked in, my wife walked in my study, and I had a a rifle in my lap, trying to work up the courage to use it. He said, I dream you're about to fall into a pit of flame because you won't preach. The church grew from about 120 when I first went there to about 60. But from Paul's point of view, the resurrection makes all of our service meaningful. Today I will be talking with Jim Allman about how Romans saved his life, his transition into the academic world, how technology affects the way he teaches now, church ministry when you aren't on staff, whether or not the Psalms are messianic, overseas ministry, and much, much more. In this conversation, we touch on depression and suicide, and I want to encourage you, if that is something that you struggle with, please, please get help. Uh, Ask a pastor, a doctor, a counselor, go to all of those people for help. Depression can be complicated. Uh, It can be caused by spiritual, physical, psychological, and physiological causes. But there are people out there who are trained to help. Uh, Please find them and contact them. With that in mind, here we go. Today I'm with uh, Dr. Jim Allman. He is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. You weren't in, in Bible exposition, but now you've moved to the languages department. I'm in both. You're I'm, in both. Okay. Yeah. Officially professor of Old Testament and professor of Bible exposition. So, <laughs> so you wear they, two they, hats. Yes. So my proper title now is Reverend Dr. Professor Professor. <laughs> and I tell the students, I, look, let me make it simple. Just call me your grace and it'll work. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Dr. Allman was a one of my favorite professors in seminary. I really enjoyed taking his courses when I had a choice between him and other people. I would uh, be biased in his direction. Uh, he's also just uh, put out a, a book, um, uh, Accept One Another, a practical and expository commentary on the book of Romans. Uh, excellent book. I highly recommend you check it out. Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll start by asking some questions ab- about the book, if okay. you don't mind. Um, <laughs> when I think of what would be one of the most intimidating things to do, I think writing a commentary <laughs> on Romans might be <laughs> at the top of the list. So uh, tell me a little bit what motivated you to, to write this commentary. A little bit of background. Um, when I came to Memphis to teach in 1982, my mentor, uh, Roger Clapp asked me one day, what are you writing your dissertation on? I said, Psalms. He, his face just fell. He said, <laughs> oh, Jim. I said, what's wrong? He said, I've stayed steered clear of Psalms all my life. I said, why? He says, it's too big. I can't wrap my mind around it. And I thought, well, fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. <laughs> and that explains Romans. Uh, the larger issue for me was um, I spent about, of the first 30 years of my Christian life, I spent about 20 in deep depression. Hmm. And uh, when I came to Memphis, I started teaching Romans. And then it was a required course. <clears throat> so we offered um, the course every semester, sometimes twice. <laughs> yeah. 
And I, I was also uh, preaching at a church in town where for the first two years I preached, I preached on Romans. Hmm. Took me about three and a half years. I finally began to believe it. <laughs> and, and it was the teaching of the book of Romans that got me out of the depression. Um, so I've, Romans has been the book that first saved my life. Hmm. And um, so over the years, I've taught it over and over again. So it was a natural progression to go ahead and write the book. Yeah, it was a labor of love. It was. Um what in particular in the book of Romans do you feel like kind of uh, pulled you out of the, that mm-hmm. depression? And, and what was, if you don't mind sharing, what was the nature of that depression? And, yeah. And how did Romans good, deal with that? Good question. Um, uh, we have that old saying, uh, uh, three steps forward, two steps back. Yeah. For me, it seemed in my Christian life, it was three, uh, th- uh, two steps forward, three steps back. <laughs> and so there, there was kind of a net regression. The, f- the, the more I tried to do what everybody told me I needed to do, or at least to the extent that I understood it, the worse I got. And I, it just kept getting worse and worse uh, to the point where when, when I was pastoring in the um, late 70s, Jan walked in, my wife walked in my study, and I had a, a rifle in my lap trying to work up the courage to use it. Oh, gosh. And um, How long had you been a Christian at that point? Oh, let's see. That was in, I'd have been 20-plus years. Oh, wow. And you were in ministry? Yeah. <laughs> was that <laughs> part of the reason why you had to go? <laughs> well, I wasn't even sure I was saved. Yeah. Um, I had a professor who said, God doesn't make any junk. When he saves, he saves completely. And I thought, so how come there's so much sin in my life? Yeah. What am I, how do I even factor all that together? And um, for me, justification was a um, legal fiction hmm. kind of thing that you do when you adopt a child. The, the child is legally your son, your daughter, but they share no specific DNA with you. Hmm. Um, so f- when God declares us righteous, for me, the synonym for righteousness was obedience. <clears throat> um, when God declares you righteous, he's, he's declared a legal fiction. He has declared that you are obedient when you're in fact not. And that created all kinds of stress, even just intellectually in my mind. But then Romans 4 just intimidated me. Uh, Romans 4 is one of the chief verses, passages I'd go to to show that faith is not a work. But then subsequently in the chapter, uh, he declares uh, God counts our faith as righteousness. Well, that's an equative statement in in Greek. Faith is righteousness. But if righteousness is obedience and faith is righteousness, then faith is obedience. That makes faith a work, but it's not a work because Paul says, to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the the ungodly, uh, his faith is counted as righteousness. And I, I just had all kinds of stress with that. Till one day in October of 1985, I was sitting in my office. student knocked on the door. He was a Navajo Indian student. Um, and uh, he said, I've been invited by my church back on the reservation in Arizona 
to come next sun, summer and teach on sanctification. He said, I don't even know where to start. So, so I, I said, well, there are five things I can say about sanctification, and there are different ways you can show in Scripture that it, it has different senses. <clears throat> One of them, I, I've always been intrigued by this, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 to the, to, the, to the saints who are, how does he say it, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's a, um, it's a, it's a passive participle, perfect passive participle. So for, the, for those who don't know what that means, what are well, the implications of that? The implication of that is, these people have, for most Christian theology, sanctification is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. Yeah. The Corinthians are already sanctified, and that is an established fact and an accomplished fact. But they're not Christ-like. So, what's going on? Some of the roughest church issues That's were right. there. So, I, I, as I said that to Jesse that day, um, I thought, you know, I have never thought this thought before. If God says something is true, it's true. Hmm. His word creates new reality. Hmm. Genesis 1. Isn't it interesting that the Bible starts with Genesis 1? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where he establishes the effect, efficacy of his word. And if he says something is true, it's my job to reconstruct my concept of reality in light of what he says. Hmm. Oh my goodness. And then I thought, well, if he justifies us and he calls us righteous, he cannot affirm a falsehood. Righteousness, he cannot affirm that we're obedient, which is the synonym I had for righteousness. Yeah. So how, what can he be saying? And I had read an article in... Uh, Kittle, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, 10 years earlier, where the fellow said righteousness is not forensic in the Old Testament. It's um, relational. And I thought, yeah, it's a liberal scholar. He's just trying to get out of the responsibility of obedience. Yeah. <laughs> but that day, I realized, you know, that, might, that guy must have been right. So that what righteousness, the synonym for righteousness has to be is not obedience. Righteousness is right relationship with God. Hmm. He can declare that sinful, Romans 4, 5, to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. He can say that an ungodly person has a right relationship with him, and the nature of that right relationship is faith. And from that moment, within about two minutes, as I was still talking about sanctification to my yeah. student, I, I went through this and and when I walked Jesse out the door that day after our conversation, I always felt like I was on um, eggshells or, or, or thin ice. I could feel yeah. them cracking. But I had so, solid ground under me for the first time in, in memory. Um, and um, that the next two years were some of the most fruitful years in my thinking about scripture that I ever experienced. So in a way, Romans kind of liberated you from the, I mean, I mean, similar to Luther liberated you from a works-based righteousness. Uh I mean, you, you, 
abstractly knew that uh, mm-hmm. you were saved by faith, right. but in your understanding of righteousness, you kept coming to the yeah. conclusion that faith has to be a work. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, oh, that's fascinating. So, so the definitions I had were improper, and that led to improper conclusions, and thus this, <laughs> this life that I was living. Uh, so w- when did that revelation occur? Did you that say? was in October of 1985. 85, okay. And so I've now lived as a Christian longer uh, by three years than I lived under law <laughs> mm. as a Christian. So uh, tell us a little bit about your your journey of faith, first of all, and then um, <laughs> your journey into ministry a little oh, bit boy. after that. Well, the Lord saved me, I think, when I was seven. Um, that time in the pastorate uh, when I wasn't even sure I was saved, one morning I was so depressed. It was three in the morning, Sunday morning. I had no sermon. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do yeah. that morning. But for the first time, Romans 5.8 really began to function for me. God doesn't save righteous people. He only saves sinners. And what I've learned subsequently is when I find out how sinful I am, that's no surprise to God. He knew all along. <laughs> it's a surprise to me. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're as self-righteous creatures. We're shocked by that's that. Right. He's not. But um, that means then that he only saves sinners. And when I demonstrate that I'm a sinner, it's only proof that I'm a valid object of the saving grace of God. It's not an indication that I'm lost. It's a, It's an indication that I'm a... I'm a legitimate recipient. I think it was uh, Groucho Marx. (laughs) The famous theologian. The great theologian, yes. Um, Surely a Calvinist. He said, I would never be a member of any organization that would have me as a member. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it was a club. I'd never become a member of any club that would accept it. So here I am, completely unqualified, but that's what qualifies me. Hmm. So, um, so, between 1955 and 1985, <laughs> um, elementary school, high school, my mother was a huge spiritual impact on me. Um, she had a couple of sermons that she preached over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Got weary of them, but they they uh, were important questions, important things. Um, and... She kept turning me back to the Lord, kept turning me back to the Lord. She ended up, uh, we, we grew, uh, were raised in a denominational church, but she started attending a church pastored by a Dallas Seminary graduate. Do you know the name David Cotton? I do not. Okay. He was dean of students until, 19, mm-hmm. uh, until 2000, um, but he was a pastor in my hometown for about 30 years. Um, Bill Bryan and... Uh, Mike Lawson were both on the staff with him. Oh, wow. But uh, 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 she just started taking off uh, with spiritual growth from the teaching she was getting there. Mm. And uh, uh, going through college, I, <laughs> I've, all, I've chosen always the most marketable degrees I could find. <laughs> I have bachelor's degree in Latin with a minor in classical Greek <laughs> and a master's and a doctorate in Hebrew. <laughs> it's just really marketable. Yeah. But, but, um, uh, uh, she, um, started instilling in me this, and I already had it, the yeah. hunger to know more, 
to understand more of the scripture and, and understand the Lord from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So I uh, uh, won the lottery in 1969. I don't know this. Most people don't know that, but I'm a lottery winner. It was uh, a three year, all expense paid tour of some of the finest army posts in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clothing, food, housing, everything's provided. Travel expenses, everything's provided. Marvelous. What was your draft number? I was in the high, in the high 60s. Okay. And they gra- drafted up typically to over uh, over 150. Okay. If I had been born 12 minutes later, this is another <laughs> indication of God's plan in my life. If I had been born 12 minutes later, I'd have been 303 and would not have been drafted. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but while I was in the service... <laughs> I, uh, they, they trained me as a German linguist and then sent me to West Texas for some specialized training. Well, tell, tell about the test that you took oh. that has to deal with <laughs> language aptitude because oh, you goodness. might not have known your aptitude for these things. Would, well, I, I knew that there was something going on there. I, <laughs> uh, but uh, I went to the, the uh, recruiter and I said, if I enlist, what kind of training would you what I have to take. And he said, uh, what's your major in college? I said, Latin. He said, we don't have much call for that. (laughs) But he said, have you thought about language school? And I said, you have language school? He said, yeah. I said, what language would I have to take? He said, let's take a test and we'll see. It's called the Army Language Aptitude Test back then. They have a different name, but same kind of test. It was a, it was an artificial language that some linguists had put together and they taught you a little grammar, taught you a little bit of the syntax. Then you had to translate this, this passage. And it was actually fun (laughs) when I, for some people, well, for for me, it was fun. (laughs) Uh, uh, When I came out, the guy went through the grading process. He said, I think I can guarantee you any language you want. What do you want? I thought, you know, this was the Vietnam War, Thai, Laotian, Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. I said, German? <laughs> he said, I think I can guarantee it. So, Well, that's strategic as well for your future theological right. studies. So I was at Fort Myer, Virginia for eight months, five days a week, six hours a day studying German. And, uh, and then I had to have that for my doctorate. So hmm. it, was a, it was a real blessing to have that background. Yeah. Um, but we were in, in West Texas at a small Air Force base going through specialized training. I, you said I, we. Were you married at that point? Well, yeah, Jan and I okay. were married. We got married right after college. Okay. Um, but the guys I went through language school with were in the same training in West Texas. <clears throat> and um, one morning, our, we had class at 6 in the morning, 6 to 12, so we'd get together at the um, at the uh, NCO club and sit around and drink coffee. And one, I almost hate to tell this. Uh, <laughs> you may want to consider whether to include this or not in what you do. Well, with a teaser like that, we have to keep it in. Well, <laughs> the uh, one of the fellows in the class was a Satanist, mm. and we were sitting there at the at the coffee ta- at the coffee bar. And, he said, uh, Almond, he said, I've been having dreams about you. I said, you have? He said, yeah. I said, well, what have you been dreaming? He said, I dream you're about to fall into a pit of flame because you won't preach. <laughs> I no, said, man. oh, you're crazy. And he said, no. He said, it's keeping me up late at night. I can't 
sleep. Sure wish you'd go talk to your <laughs> pastor. <laughs> sure wish you'd start preaching. <laughs> so I went to my pastor. Well, that's the first time I've heard about a Satanist tormented about somebody Everything else's Everything about this is wrong. Everything about this is wrong. You, you ain't heard it all yet. <laughs> so I went to the pastor and he said, well, have people all your life been telling you you ought to go into ministry? I said, yeah. He said, who? Little old ladies? I said, yeah, pretty much. He said, that doesn't count. He said, every little old lady who likes a kid thinks he ought to go into the ministry. And then he said, well, what about a Satanist? <laughs> but he said, something might be going on with this. I, you ought to pray about it. Well, if you've got to be in class at 6 a.m., midnight's awfully late. So I was lying awake, couldn't go to sleep. I said, Lord, I need an answer. And if you'd be pleased to give me an answer tonight, I sure would appreciate it. So I took my Amplified Bible put it on its spine, let it fall open, put my finger down. <laughs> Told you. The whole plop and point. Gosh. Theological method. But um, it said, but arise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a minister and a witness of the things you've seen of me. And mm. a couple of verses later, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not dis- uh, disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's never happened to me subsequently. Yeah. But I think the the outcome, the event, has has showed God, in His marvelous grace, met me at my at the level of my expectations because that's what I'd been taught. Well, and, cast, casting lots isn't very spiritual either, but the Lord uses it. And He met me um, at the level of my maturity, which was very low. Uh, you know, that's a really interesting concept because I think, um, you know, particularly in Early in your pursuit of ministry, early in your Christian life, the Lord will will make certain things abundantly clear, mm-hmm. and later on, you're hoping for the for the same level of clarity yeah. for other decisions. Absolutely. But if part of God's purpose is to instill in us wisdom and discernment, mm-hmm. He's not going to continue to use right. those overly abundantly obvious yeah. methodology. What's even worse now is I'm not even convinced there is such a thing as a call. But God mm-hmm. meets us where we are and directs us at appropriate times in his way. And since he's God, he gets to do whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got into ministry. So that's how you got in. Yeah. What, what was your what was your path and journey into ministry? You're, you're now in the, well, the seminary. Yeah. It wasn't a straight line course for you to, to yeah. get to that point. We went to Central Texas from West Texas to Fort Hood, Texas. <laughs> uh, and I, I always was confused when people talked about West Texas. I thought they were talking about the western part of the state. Yeah. Until I discovered West Texas is a city in East Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, but they also have a, a town called Humble. In Texas, so you, you'll have to understand their concept of English down there. But, but um, uh, in in at Fort Hood, we joined a church, um, and the pastor came to me one day and he said, "I understand you you've been called into ministry." I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "We have a church plant that we're that needs a youth director. Would you be interested?" And I said, well, yes. So I served two years as a youth director at Pershing Park Baptist Church in <laughs> Killeen, Texas. And um, then when I got out of the service, went went to Dallas Seminary. 
was was the experience as a youth pastor like for you? It was good, um, I, which is surprising because I really hate parties, <laughs> <laughs> and it's gotten worse over the years. Yeah, but, um, we uh, we had a good ministry there. Uh, it was a strong ministry, one of the larger youth ministries in Killeen, which wasn't saying a whole lot, but yeah. you know, but it was. We'd have 60, 80 kids in a small church and um, had, had a good ministry for a couple of years there. Okay. And then uh, came to Dallas. Uh, my inclination was to go to Dallas. I'd had more Greek than my denominational seminary offered. <laughs> uh, uh, and and uh, so I wanted to go to Dallas, and and, and your mom had also been fed by some Dallas guys. Yeah, that's Did that right. Influence the decision. As oh, well? enormously. Okay. My parents are divorced, and my dad said to me several years ago, "You know, your mother manipulated you into going to Dallas Seminary." I said, "I wasn't aware of that." He said, "Oh, she has ways of manipulating you don't know anything about." So years later. Mother and I were going. We our families were going to Colorado on a on a vacation together, mm-hmm. and I said something about what my dad had said. She laughed. She said, "I didn't try to manipulate you, but your stepfather did." <laughs> I said, "How did he do that?" She said, "Do you remember getting all those tapes from uh, the uh, the church in Oklahoma City?" I said, "Yes." He, she said, "My stepfather's name was Otis." Otis said, if he can't tell the difference between what his denominational seminary will give him and what Dallas Seminary will give him, he deserves whatever he gets. <laughs> well, it just sharpened because they had Walford and they had Ryrie yeah. and they had Hendricks and they had uh, Campbell and, uh, gosh, Pentecost. And everybody who was anybody. In fact, anybody on the evangelical map yeah. went through that church at one time or another. And we got the tapes regularly. Mm-hmm. So there was just not really any choice for me but Dallas. And um, so ended up there, THM. So I did a, a four-year, 120-hour master's degree. You know anything about that? I, I know a little bit about yes. that. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell people it's, it's, like a, um, it's like an MDiv but on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. so that was my path. When we got into, I, I went through the THM program, 73 to 77, and was accepted into the doctoral program. We went, I went right into it in the fall of 77. Uh, and um, each year, first year at seminary, uh, the tuition was $35 an hour. Hmm. To, to, to put that in perspective, our house payment, our, our, uh, uh, apartment rent was $175 an hour, a, a, a semester. Month. A semester? A, mu- a month. Oh, a yeah. month. Okay. 175 a month. All utilities pay. Uh, be nice to find a deal like that now. Oh, boy. <laughs> in college, my tuition was $12.50 an hour, and, and my family struggled to pay that. Our house mm-hmm. payment was $72 a month. Oh, wow. Um, and when I left seminary uh, the first time, well, when I finally left seminary, tuition was $120 a month. And I I would just grieve. Lord, what are you doing? I don't have the money. How am I going to pay this? And the Lord would meet my needs. 
and then I'd, I'd get worried again the next month. We, I may, I work for an evangelist and, uh, they paid me weekly. So I never had enough money to pay my rent all at once. I had to pay them two installments. They weren't happy about it, but they got the money consistently. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I thought, where's it going to come from? The baby's sick. The baby needs new clothes. The baby needs this. And I I would just, Lord, what are you doing? They're going to evict me from this apartment. I can't see, and I prayed this a hundred times, I can't see how sitting on the street on our sofa will bring glory to your name, but <laughs> I guess that's what we'll do if we have to. And he always met our needs. But things, Gives you more sympathy for the Israelites oh boy, when you see their yes. continued failure. <laughs> and, oh my. Um, and things kept getting worse every semester, seemed like every year, certainly. Things got worse and worse. Is this as you were getting your doctorate? Well, master's degree. This is the master's degree. Okay. And then I got into the doctorate, and things got really bad. Um, uh, I was working. Where was oh? Oh, I I worked uh, part time at a college in in Memphis in the first year of my doctorate, uh, teaching a, a course now and again. Yeah. But I lost that position, hmm. and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was six weeks. Were, you, commu- were you commuting to Memphis to teach? I'm the sorry, course, I, or? I, keep, I live in Memphis <laughs> in my mind. Da- okay. Dallas is where I visit. Oh, uh, so it was in Dallas where we. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that's an eight-hour commute. Uh, yeah, that's it is. <laughs> so, so uh, I lost that job. And I was six weeks without work. Finally got a job painting houses, which I abhor. Uh, <laughs> we've been in, in the same house for 18 years. Have no, I've painted nothing in it for 18 years. But um, uh, started painting houses. And we had uh, two children, three children by that time, two mm-hmm. more. And things were getting really bad. How so? Oh, we moved from our apartment to a house, rental house. Mm-hmm. Didn't have an air, a, a refrigerator. Oh, so gosh. I, I bought a used refrigerator and, and borrowed a, rented a pickup truck to, uh, to move it. When you do that, you can frequently uh, damage the compressor. Mm. I did. So we couldn't keep milk overnight. And our youngest, who's mother of four now, (laughs) Uh, um, was beginning, we didn't know this until later, to suffer from the first stages of malnutrition. Oh, gosh. Oh, it was getting bad. Baby was crying all the time. And Jen and I were arguing all the time. Just So the family life was starting to suffer a lot. It was horrible. Um, I, the, 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 the one thing about painting that was good was I was away from home. Hmm. Um, and as it turned out, this was something uh, illustrating a point that Howard Hendricks used to make. There's never, there's no such thing as a spiritual blowout. There's always been a slow leak. Hmm. Um, looking back in subsequent years, I realized that, um, I had been ignoring my family. 
I didn't realize it. The, the kind of culminating point one day was sitting in the student lounge with a fellow student, doctoral student. Yeah. Um, Gordon, he's been a pastor up in Michigan for all these years. I said, Gordon, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand what the Lord's doing. I said, all, all, always before he's provided our needs. I'm not talking about curtains for the windows. I'm talking about food for the children. That's a need. Hmm. He's not even supplying our needs now. I don't understand why, what's going on. Well, he said, I know what. I know what's happening. <laughs> I, I said, well, how do you know what's happening? His wife had lupus. Hmm. And uh, that's a bad thing. She was a kindergarten, certified kindergarten teacher with lupus. You can't oh, be around gosh. children and you can't be out in the sun. She lives in in, in North Texas. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Is uh, that why they moved to Michigan afterwards? I probably <laughs> get away from the sun. So, so um his wife couldn't get out and my, we had one car mm-hmm. I was painting. So I had to have it. Jan was home uh, with three children under the age of, let's see, this was um, 78. So under the age of seven and uh, Jan and his wife, Tammy developed a, a telephone relationship. Jan would pour out her heart to Tammy Tammy would tell Gordon, now Gordon's going to tell me. <laughs> I said, well, what's going on? He said, uh, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to make it easy on you? I said, well, tell me the truth. He said, you're killing your wife and you don't even know it. When she tries to tell you what's going on, you won't listen. I, I've discovered, I, I have, as it turns out, two master's degree, uh, <laughs> one in theology, and one in self-justification. I have I graduated with honors mm-hmm. with that master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, you won't listen. He said, your kids hate your books and your study and everything you're doing. I said, Gordon, what do I do? He said, you need to get out of here. You need to get away from this place. Well, in the providence of God, a little church in our hometown was in need of a pastor. I'm sure that the request came into the administration of the seminary, and that's how they got my name. I can't figure it out any other way they'd have gotten my name. <laughs> and they, How far in, into the doctoral program? Was three sem- this is my third semester third of the doctoral semester. program. Okay. I, I did um, half of the doctoral program, over half, in three semesters. The other, less than a half, I did in four. <laughs> You had to be ignoring your family quite a bit if you did half in three semesters. My day was like this in the master's program. Um, we lived in uh, west of DFW Airport. The seminary is in downtown Dallas or just east of downtown mm-hmm. Dallas. And it was 25 miles to school. We'd get up, especially in the early years, we would take our daughter to daycare I would take my wife to work because at that time we had one car. Mm-hmm. Then I would drive to the seminary, sometimes getting there, not knowing what route I had taken or whether I had stopped at any stoplights or if or, uh, we, we had every, every class day, we had eight, eight o'clock classes. Uh, and I was there from eight till about three every day. And then I would go back over where my wife worked. I had a job working 
a block or so from where she worked as a church secretary. So she would walk over and get the car, at, and when she got off work, go get the baby from daycare, go home, fix dinner, clean the baby up. Eight o'clock, it was four o'clock when I went to work, and I'd get off normally about eight o'clock. Uh, so she'd pick me up at eight, we'd go home, I'd eat dinner at nine o'clock. I'd uh, start studying and study till midnight, one o'clock, and then get up and do the same thing the next day. And I went through summer school um, um, every every summer, the three summers in between first, second, third, fourth years. It's a years. brutal existence. Uh, so I'd essentially been ignoring my family for yeah. five and a half years by this time that Gordon was telling me this. So we left and went to this little church. It's its name was Grace Bible Church. Scares me now to death. If you tell me you're a pastor of Grace Bible Church, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't know anything about grace. <laughs> I don't want to pastor friendship, fellowship, faith Bible Church. I, I Corinth Bible Church. That I would pastor. But maybe they won't know anything about divisiveness. Maybe. Uh, so so you're, you're saying they just think those things are names? I don't know what, I don't know how they think, mm-hmm. but I started, mind you, I didn't know what grace was either, <laughs> but I started preaching on grace and people got mad. This was, this was still before your. Oh yes. Revelatory this was moment. 78 to 80. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd preach on grace and people got mad at me. <laughs> Why would they get mad? At Grace Bible Church. Why would they get mad? Yeah. Maybe they don't understand sin, so I started preaching on sin, and they got mad at me. <laughs> Maybe they don't understand sin because they don't understand the character of God. So I started preaching on the character of God, and then they didn't get mad at me again. <laughs> but, really? Yeah. Um, we stayed there about uh, uh, about 20 months. <clears throat> it was... Um, the very early spring or the late winter of 1980. Um, we had no elders. The previous pastor had told the people that the elders were not qualified to be elders. Effectively, nobody but he was qualified to be an elder. And um, I, I'm not sure Gabriel would actually be qualified. Michael, maybe, but maybe not Gabriel. Um, There's... There's a certain personality type that's very dictatorial that gets attracted to churches. Was this kind of a little country church or no? It was an urban church. It was right right outside a military base. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Did he leave of his own volition or was he kicked out? You know, I don't know. I I never have. I didn't even think to ask the question back then. But uh, we went through a process of identifying elders, and at the late winter, early spring of 80, um, we had settled on three elders, another guy named Jim, a guy named George, and then me. What was interesting was the the church grew from about 120 when I first Mm -hmm. went there to about 60. (laughs) That 18 months. and Inverse growth. Yeah. And they didn't just go to different churches. They moved out of state. 
I mean, people just <laughs> left entirely. It was it was astonishing. This this other guy named Jim was was the bedrock. I knew we had to have him on the elder committee because yeah. George and I were both very compliant kinds of persons. Jim was had some steel in his backbone, and he could hold us, and we could work together and arrive at yeah. some good leadership. But he moved away, mm. and uh, that left George and me, and I knew we weren't going to make it. So I went to my wife, and I said, uh, Jan, I can paint houses, and I hate painting houses. I can pastor, but you see how well I've done here. Or I can go back and get my doctorate. Would you let me go back and get my doctorate? I don't think she took a breath. She said, under no circumstance will I ever go back to Dallas Seminary. That was the worst period of of our marriage for me. Hmm. I thought, what am I going to do? Well, things kept, kept, kept getting worse at the church. And a few weeks later, I went back and I said, honey, you see what's happening here. I can pastor, I can paint, or I can go back to seminary. Will you let me go back and finish my doctorate? She said, under two conditions, we'll go, I'll go back. I said, what are the two conditions? She said, I wanted an hour. I'm sorry. I wanted a night every week that you spend with the children. You can't have any books, no notes, no three by five cards. You can't be memorizing anything. You have to do what they want to do. Well, the worst, the heaviest of the courses that I had in the program <laughs> was a two-hour course um, on ancient Near Eastern history, nine textbooks, a 40-page paper, and collateral reading in the library. Hmm. I died a week. I gulped, and I said, what's the other condition? And that was the worst course. Most yeah. of them weren't as bad as that, but what's the other condition? She said, I want, um, I want a night every week for, for myself, too. Two. I don't know how I can do this, but I can paint or I can pass. The alternative didn't seem too good. So I said, "Well, okay, I'll do that." And we did. Uh, the The next two years, I cut my coursework way back, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I had I don't know how many hours I had when I left seminary that first time. This is my third coming. Jesus has only two. I have three. Uh, um, uh, I don't know how many hours I had when I left, but I, it was it was more than half of the forty hours that was required. And I I did the the remaining fifteen or sixteen in four semesters mm-hmm. instead of two or three. Night every week for the kids. Night every week for my wife and. Um, it didn't solve the problems, but they got better. Yeah. It, it, I had hurt the family so deeply that took a while to repair. It took that. a long time. It was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years before. Oh wow! Um, a lot of that was gone, hmm. um, and I I had just hurt them that deeply. I'm I'm thankful my children love me now. Um, but, um, I can't, I can't believe how deeply I had hurt them. 
So uh, we went back. And the remarkable thing is my grades went up. Uh, and I tell this to students at the <laughs> seminary. I said, I'm not offering this as a means of raising your grade point average. What I'm saying is there are priorities that are higher than a grade in any course. If you get a Master of Theology degree and lose your family, what have you got? What's the use of it? Um, so I tell them, I give them a specific strategy for earning a, a B or even a C in class because I tell them, I, you can get an A on one assignment, know that you can do it, but you'll keep your priorities right. You, you keep your relationships sound. And I also add in ministry. That yeah. you, you need to have a ministry. What, what are you doing at seminary without a ministry? So um, if you want to work for a C in a three-hour course, you, you will write one paper and if you make an A on the paper, I'll give you a C plus. But you'll also have kept your priorities right. Hmm. And um, uh, as I tell them at the end of every course, <clears throat> except Hebrew, I haven't figured out how to do this for <laughs> Hebrew. But I tell them at the end of the of every course, um, you're going to get a grade. And you kind of know where your grade is now. You know enough of what you've been making up to up through the semester. You know generally where you're going to end up. But it doesn't matter because in 10 years you won't remember what you made in this course and nobody else will care. Hmm. What really matters is standing before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. Is he going to ask you what right up front what your GPA was? Is he going to ask about your ministry and your family and the fruit that the word of God has borne in your life? Um. So keep those as the priorities. Enjoy the grade if you can. Thank God for the grade if you must. But keep your priorities right. Uh, at least maybe I can have a little fruit that comes from the failure that I had in the past. Yeah. I appreciate your honesty, you know, sharing those difficulties and sharing those struggles. That was one of the things that was encouraging going through your courses is the vulnerability you 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 show because a lot of times uh particularly in pastoral ministry people put up a veneer mm -hmm. in the seminary as well people just have these polished veneers that mm -hmm. aren't that aren't real that aren't aren't mm -hmm. true to life they're just projections of what they think yeah. a, a pastor should be yeah. or or what the christian ideal christian life should be mm -hmm. so I, I always appreciate that in your classes um i appreciated the the emphasis on uh, not making an idol out of your grades yeah. uh, going through. Now, in fact, um, it might have been, I'm not sure if it was spurred by, by what you said, but there was one point uh, at, at a semester where I had a, a, a lot of courses and I was just kind of struggling and, and frustrated. And I kind of reprioritized because it was like if I had a big project in one class due soon, I would focus on that and then kind of Greek and some other classes that required uh, continuous care started suffering and I, I, I changed my priority and I said, uh, these are the classes I really care about, you know, of, of the five courses I was taking or whatever. Yeah. These two I really care about. These other three are, are not as high a priority. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the small assignments for these courses I care a lot about 
before I do the large and mm-hmm. important assignments for these other classes mm-hmm. I don't care about. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of revitalized me just that little reprioritization yeah. because right. I was living more in line with my values. Sure. And I think what you said about, you know, value your family before more than your grades, value your ministry yeah. more than your grades and right. certainly value your relationship with God mm-hmm. more than your grades. But I think, I think sometimes people think there's a direct correspondence between those <laughs> and their grades. And yeah. when you're in seminary, grades can become the end all be all. When I first came as a student, they had just gone through accreditation hmm. and they'd done a survey of the graduates they asked them, um, uh, what did you get? I'm sorry, let's see. How much do you use Greek and Hebrew in your sermon preparation? This was back in 1973 Mm -hmm. when, I don't remember, we had five required Greek courses Mm -hmm. and four uh, required Hebrew courses. Still do have four. There may have been six required Greek courses back then. Um. So, so how much do you use Greek and Hebrew in the preparation of your sermons? Less than half said they ever used it. Hmm. Then they later on in the survey, it's nice to keep these kinds of uh, these kinds of questions separate. Yeah. Later on, they said, uh, "What did you get uh, too much of? Got too much Greek and Hebrew? Well, if they got too much, <laughs> they wouldn't. They would be able to use it. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, my one of my Greek profs in that. 1973 class said they didn't get too much. They got too little. Mm. Said if you're having to spend more than five minutes parsing a verb, you don't have time to do that in a busy yeah. pastorate. You got to be able to read it in order to be able to use it. And uh, so um, keeping your priorities right is, is always the right thing. I tell students, I don't get to do this very much anymore, but I tell students, if you're going to choose an elective, don't choose an elective that you could read a book and learn about. Choose an elective that you need somebody standing over you that saying, this is the way walkie in it. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about with Greek and Hebrew and other kinds of courses as well. Yeah. My, my dad gave me similar advice when I was going into seminary. I was kind of asking about, well, what should I focus on? What should yeah. I study? And he said, study the things that you're not going to be able to get once you get out of seminary and focus on those things. So, you know, there's, there's, there's certain things you learn by doing uh-huh. you know, a lot of learning to preach and things like that yeah. and minister well and funerals. Well, that's, you, you learn by yeah. doing. That was also, I'm not going to learn Greek. I'm not going to learn Hebrew. I'm not going to learn textual criticism. <laughs> By myself, so I ended up kind of pursuing classes like that. But there was another kind of course that I learned, and that is um, uh, we had Alan Ross teaching Hebrew. My my beginning in Hebrew was with Alan Ross, John Hanna, yeah, Roy Zook. Uh, I wanted everything they offered, mm-hmm. and um, if if there's a prof who's just remarkable, oh yeah, you know that you you can't get that kind of influence from a book. Mm-hmm. Then that's another kind of elective to take, but uh, yeah, and that influenced a lot where I went yeah. to seminary. Is look at the professors, mm-hmm. you know, who's there, what yeah. what do they have to mm-hmm. offer? 
Um, now, if you had if you had somebody who was going into ministry, um, and they're they're well, first of all, you may want to warn them about certain things. Yeah. But you know, you you mentioned the difficulty with family. How would you how would you advise them to protect these things that you say are yeah. are important, uh, both in both in academics and in in ministry? In pastoring, I don't know. I don't know how to tell them. Okay. Um, an awful lot of churches have unrealistic expectations about what a pastor ought to be and do. Um, I was on a, 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 a um, pulpit committee years ago here in Memphis, and uh, we were talking about, oh, okay, what are going to be the responsibilities of the new pastor? And people started naming things, and I was keeping track of all of them. I said, wait a minute, I got a question. Um, how many hours a week do you expect this guy to, to function? There are 168 hours in a week. How much time is he going to spend on, the, on, the, uh, on his pastoral ministry? One of the men was an executive, and he said, well, I ought to spend at least 60 hours a week. And, okay. Uh, 60 hours a week. Um, does that include Sunday morning and Sunday evening? No, it doesn't. I mean, wait, wait a minute. He's going to spend 60 hours a week, and it doesn't include Sunday morning and Sunday evening? No. He said he ought to be here uh, as much as any committed layman would be. Well, I knew this guy. <laughs> he had a he had a lake house down at whatever the lake is down southeast of, of Dallas, of uh, Memphis. Pickwick. I, Pickwick. Yeah. He had a lake house down at Pickwick. And I said, you feel free on a Sunday to take, you're a committed layman. You feel free to take off and go to the lake house on a given Sunday. Yeah. Can the pastor do that? No. That doesn't make any sense. Then we started parceling out. How much, what percentage of time do you expect this guy to spend on this and this and this? And it was, it was coming out to be something like 140% of that 60 hours. <laughs> uh, churches have unrealistic expectations of pastors. Um, my, uh, the mentor that I had here, uh, told me one day, he said, watch when you go into a hospital, a visitation room or, or sitting room and people are there, people from your church and their loved one is in the room and they're not sure what, what's going to happen with this person. You walk in, he said, watch them. He said, they will physically relax. You'll see their shoulders they're tense. They'll, you'll see their shoulders go down. They'll take a deep breath because the pastor's here. He's in touch with God. Now things are going to be okay. But they're in touch with God too. We think that somehow the pastor, another moment for possible editing. <laughs> I don't think there's even any evidence biblically for the office of pastor. Um. It's a gift, but not an office. It's a gift, but not an office. Um, the offices are elder and deacon. Hmm. But the elders don't seem to think of themselves as ministers of the church. They seem to think many elders, not all, obviously. Yeah. Thank God. But but many elders think of themselves as the bosses and the staff work for the them. Executives. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, they don't believe in equipping the saints for That's the right. work of the ministry. Yeah. 
They believe that's the pastor's job. Yeah. Uh, so um, I th- often, I, I can't say, all, uh, say anything much more ge- general than that, but often yeah. when you're walking into a pastoral position, you're walking into a position where you're guaranteed to fail. Um, you're the lightning rod of all the criticism in the church. I was a youth director for a mm-hmm. while. And people criticized me, and it was hard. Yeah, pastor there said, "You've got to be thick-skinned and thin." I'm sorry, uh, soft-hearted, hard, yeah. uh, thick-skinned and soft-hearted. Yeah, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know. Yeah, um, that's, that's actually something Sandy mentioned in yeah. our previous interview. Yeah. So um, he said, "But you won't know what this criticism is like until you're a pastor." Well, I got it then when I pastored that little church. Uh, you got to be prepared for that. You got to be prepared for spending an awful lot more time on administration than on Bible study, prayer, and and uh, specific spiritual ministry to people. Hmm. Um, you're going you're gonna to have to be in committee meetings and you're going to have to be in board meetings and uh, it's you got to know that that's what that's a part of the deal. It, you know. Um. Now you you ended up in an academic ministry. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> what, what what type of are there certain personality traits? Are there certain oh. things about you that you feel like? I just fit better in there. So, and, and what are those things? And if you're advising somebody who's trying to decide between the two, you know, yeah. what are the traits and characteristics you look for? Well, teaching can be hard work. And the, one of our professors was new. Eugene Merrill was a new prof mm-hmm. when I was a student at the seminary. He said the first five years at any institution are murder. And boy, is he, is he right. <laughs> My first five years at Dallas were just terrible. I'd have left yeah. at the drop of a hat if I could have. Um, but you were you were in academic ministry before that. In you were, you in were Memphis, teaching yeah. in Memphis at a, at a Bible college yeah. there. Uh, but you see, I was a big fish in a small pond there. Then you became a small fish in a big in, pond. In a huge pond. Yeah. And, and uh, Plus, there's a sense in which moving to the new institution, I had to earn my spurs again. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to... I, I had to... Um, earn the respect of the of the of the students and so forth. I don't know. Yeah. But um, my first year here in Memphis was crazy. I was working on my dissertation. I'd come in on Saturdays and 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 work on my dissertation. Um, and then the other five day five days other than Sunday, the other five days of the week, I was scrambling just to have enough written down so that I have enough to say for an hour in class the next day. <laughs> it was terrible. I was just, I was staying just a day ahead, not even a day ahead. I would, I would have my notes ready by the end of the afternoon, but, um, well, to teach, you've just got to know one class worth more material than the students. That's true. <laughs> you kind of have to know no. where you're going. To. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know what the traits are. Uh, I, I was interviewing for a, coll- a staff position, faculty position, at a college on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Oh, back or sometime around 1990, 
and they said, what is your philosophy of teaching? I said, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I don't even know. I, I don't know how to frame so a philosophy you, of teaching. You just do it. You don't think about That's it. That's right. Yeah. Um, what are the traits? I don't know. You, you have to kind of like people. I like people uh, at a distance. <laughs> are you an introvert or extrovert? I'm, I'm very much an introvert yeah. with extrovert tendencies. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't like to have my office door closed. Um, and I enjoy people dropping in. Yeah. But I need some time when I'm alone so I can recharge. There, there's, I, I think there are certain advantages to being an introvert in both teaching and pastoral ministry. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm also an introvert. And I love, it's like part of my job is to wrestle with the deep things of God and then to present those treasures yeah, to the people absolutely. of God. Yeah. And I, I think for introverts that, you know, that's something kind of uh, attractive because yeah. it's, it allows you time by yourself and then it allows you time interacting with others, but it's also very structured, mm-hmm. you know, in a teaching environment, right. you have, Hey, there's, there's here, my responsibility as a teacher, here's your responsibilities as a student, as a pastor. It's like, okay, well, the pulpit's here, I'm up here, <laughs> I, you know, I have this amount of time and you have this. Uh, you know, it's it's just a very structured and organized, yeah. it's not very chaotic. And um, you know, as an as an introvert, you you don't have to worry about anybody interrupting you most of the time <laughs> in those type of settings. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how to answer the question. Well, what do you what do you enjoy about teaching? I enjoy seeing the light come on in people's eyes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> several years ago in Memphis. I was teaching, I think, a course on Hebrews. Yeah. Um, and there were, we, we had about 30% of our student body was, was African-American. Mm-hmm. And uh, one brother sat in the back of class, and we were just going on through Hebrews. And he, he stood up. I looked at him through the double thing. He stood there, went on teaching. After a bit, another brother got up. He he headed to the back door, or toward the uh, the uh, door of the classroom. I thought, well, he's probably going to needs to step out for a minute. He'll be back. But he got to the door and turned around to walk back across. Then he walked across again. And he walked back across. So he's pacing the back <laughs> yeah. of the classroom. He and I were friends, and yeah. I said to him after the class, "What was going on?" He said, "We couldn't sit still. Hmm. We had to do something." It was had to. Yeah. I, I love it when the the light comes on. This is why I don't like teaching Hebrews Hebrew as much as I do teaching Bible because the light. So never, a few lights. Come the on. light never comes on in Hebrew. <laughs> that that uh, that, is, that is way too personal. I, I am not sure how I passed uh, Hebrew, but I don't. I don't think the light ever came on for in Hebrew, <laughs> Hebrew for me. I kept trying, but. Uh, you know, for a, for a, for a spark to catch, there's got to be some fuel to catch it. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I had enough fuel for it. <laughs> oh, well, I'm looking. I'm teaching fourth semester Hebrew this fall, this spring. Mm. Looking forward to that because I think I actually know something about this part of the Hebrew course because uh, it's focusing on Psalms. So oh, great. Having done my dissertation on Psalms, I think I have something to offer. I'm not sure that I have anything to offer in the other three semesters. Yeah. So. Uh, so what's something about, about okay. the Psalms that 
not everybody knows or, or yeah. that's, uh, you, you've found really insightful for understanding the Psalms as a whole? One course that really lit a fire under me was taught by S. Lewis Johnson, Jr. Um, it was the use of the Old Testament and the New. Mm. And that Did he write a book with the same title? Yes, that? very, very brief. It was okay. a series of lectures that he did at a college. Um, but um, I got fascinated with that, and it, it's, it's remained a kind of passion for me all these years. <clears throat> and, and one of the things that you face when you're studying that is, how do the New Testament writers use the Old Testament? Are they being fair with the Old Testament context? And sometimes they use it in ways you'd be uncomfortable to. <laughs> well, yeah, and I have decided that, uh, that from my point of view, a key hermeneutical issue is going to be um, I found that the authors tend to know the Old Testament better than I do. Mm. So I should trust their interpretation, but then figure out how they got where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so... So it's trying to discover their process of right. how do they uh -huh. interpret the Old Testament. Yeah. So uh, obviously Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. and. Yeah. Um, the effect of that is, um, well, that's not too obvious. I didn't know it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I might've guessed Isaiah. If you so, just Psalms is first, me. Isaiah is second, Deuteronomy is third. Hmm. Same thing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, Psalms okay. first, Isaiah second, Deuteronomy third. Yeah. Um, but, um, in, in looking at the Psalms, People are inclined to say, well, anytime the word Lord is used, they make that Jesus or, you know, any number of principles like that. I'm, yeah. I'm utterly uncomfortable with that. Are they too, are those type of rules too rigid? Or? No, they're, they're, they're too, they're, let me go on. Okay. Just a step farther, and it'll, it'll make clear. <laughs> and then come back, yeah. i got to have an interpretation of the Old Testament that would convince a first-century non-believing Jew that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm. The apostles did. Yeah. With their quotations. So i got to have that same kind of hermeneutic. What would convince a first-century Jew that Jesus is the Messiah? Then you come to a, 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 a passage like, Oh, what is that Psalm? Hundred and um can't remember hundred and it's in Hebrews one. Um uh, your years are, are everlasting, like the, the, the world I can't quote it. Why can't I quote it? Uh Psalm 102, that's what it is. And it's quoted with reference to Jesus and, and specifically with reference to his deity. Uh, but there's nothing in Psalm 102, that's talking about anybody but God. So how do you get from God in Psalm 102 to Jesus in Hebrews 1? And that's troubled me over the years. Um, some years ago, I go to India from time to time, and, and I take a book with me to India that I won't read anyplace else because yeah. I can't watch TV, can't listen to the radio. And you got a long, long flight. Got long flights, but also... You, you, with jet lag, you wake up at three in the morning, can't mm. sleep. So you get up and read. So I took John Eaton with me that year. I was reading through it. His argument in Kingship and the Psalms 
is that essentially it's it's wrong to talk about messianic psalms hmm. because the psalms is is um, what I just read a quotation this this morning um, on psalms. It, there's an article. Um, Fellows arguing that the the uh, Psalms are a meditation on the Davidic covenant, hmm. and Eaton's argument is uh, the whole book of Psalms is celebrating the kingship of God as it's expressed through the house of David, even after the fall of David uh, of the Davidic house. So um, it's fairly That's common. Fascinating. Yeah, it's fairly common after 1970. Seven or so, a guy named Gerald Wilson uh, wrote his dissertation, and has it, it has affected Psalms research ever since. To this day, it's affecting Psalms research, <clears throat> saying that the Psalms are not arbitrarily organized; they are they are put in order to to turn Israel away from the Davidic house to the kingship of God. So, Psalm eighty nine is probably, I fought this for years, but I finally capitulated intellectually to it. <laughs> Psalm 89 is about the fall of the Davidic kingship. Hmm. But there are Davidic Psalms and Messianic Psalms after Psalm 89. So what are they doing there? If we're turning away entirely from the Davidic kingship to the kingship of God. So um, um, I think Eaton is right. Uh, a couple of years later, I was teaching Old Testament theology at a seminary in India, and I was reading Bruce Waltke's Old Testament theology book. All these books have yeah. creative titles, in mm-hmm. Old Testament theology. But uh, um, he said the same thing. He said he thinks Eaton is right and gave some more arguments for it. That's three of us. <laughs> <laughs> but it solves so many problems. If the Psalms are essentially Davidic, covenant psalms, then the heir of the Davidic covenant must be a legitimate subject for the psalms to be talking about. Hmm. And so when God is ruling on earth, Psalm 102, and he, he, is, he is the everlasting one who's, who's, who's ruling over a very ephemeral creation, then the person who's in view, since God in psalms rules through the Davidic house, He's ruling through the one who is the heir of David. Now, why hasn't there been a, an heir of David between um, Jehoiakim in 597 BC and the first century? Because there was no qualified heir. Hmm. Jesus is qualified heir. We're waiting for him. He's seated at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to be placed as the footstool under his feet. So the the point is the Psalms are a, if I may use it this way, messianic songbook. Um, And that just revolutionized everything for me. It opens up so much. Yeah. So uh, a big issue in Old Testament studies these days is... So you started out with... I want to make sure I yeah. trace the line. You, you said at one point that it's not messianic, but now you're saying it is a messianic songbook. Yeah. Well, what, what people will say is that Psalm 102 is not messianic. Hmm. But it's because they have 
the they assumption. Have, yes, the assumption that the that there is no argument being developed in the book throughout the whole uh-huh. thing. Okay. So with Gerald Wilson's work, uh, this is this has turned the whole direction of psalms research. So people used to kind of look at one psalm and say, mm-hmm. okay, this one's messianic, this mm-hmm. one isn't, it's not. rather than looking yeah. at the argument of the right. or, uh, and the composition of the whole. So um, if, I, if on a doctoral oral comprehensive exam I may say to a student, uh, give me some messianic psalms, well, Psalm 2, Psalm 18, Psalm 22, Psalm you know, uh, 45, yeah. some whatever. Uh, but that's no longer a legitimate question if this is a proper mm-hmm. way of reasoning about yeah. Psalms. Yeah, that does change a lot. So one of the areas that Old Testament study is really emphasizing in these days is, especially among evangelicals, is how do I preach Christ from the Old Testament? Well, Psalms has now opened up for that. In one way or another, Jesus is the subject, is the ultimate referent of every psalm. There may be a historical referent in whatever century the psalm is written, but whatever is true of, whatever is divinely true about any Davidic king is true about the Davidic king, Jesus. I'm going to make a kind of abrupt change in topic, Uh, but I know it's something you're interested in. Um, When it comes to, you know, both, pastoral and theological and academic training. Um, There's been a lot that's happened with technology that's kind of opening up a lot of, a lot of new doors and opportunities. I I know you're a bit of a hobbyist in this area. So I was just curious, what do you think some of the best tools out there are for, for education uh, and and, and through technology and things like that? I cut my teeth on accordance. Yeah. Um, loved accordance. I still use it for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. But I got introduced to Logos Bible software a few years ago. <sighs> now it's my right arm. I don't yeah. know what I'd do without it. What are the advantages of these, oh, these resources, just for people who don't know about them? It has a vast bibliography. Mm-hmm. Um, almost for the, for the average Bible student, Essentially, every book you will want is available on Logos. I have 13,000 modules on on Logos, (laughs) and those are the ones I have left on the system. I've taken two or 3,000 off um, because I I don't use them. Mm -hmm. Um, Logos is intimidating when you first get it, and I had to go through some training, and... (laughs) It was like it's almost too much information when you kind of first well, open it up. Knowing how to get at stuff, what what the use of anything is. Yeah. I went through about a four-hour training session, and suddenly the thing opened up. And I, there is not a day I don't. I'm not in Logos. This morning I woke up at three fifty. <laughs> is that a later early morning? For that you? was a very early morning. <laughs> Recently, I've been doing better on sleep lately. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, I keep the computer under my bed. It's a laptop. If I can't get back to sleep, I pull the laptop out and I start working. Uh, the, uh, the ability to put together information <laughs> is just incredible. Uh, and, and to preserve it so that you can retrieve it 
yeah. uh, is an, is astonishing. Um, so I'm teaching on Isaiah in Sunday school now. Mm-hmm. And at three in the morning, all my commentaries were at school Yeah, in my office. So I can't do any commentary research at home unless I bring the books home. Mm-hmm. Then I got to take them back to the office and remember <laughs> to do it, not just stack them in my study. Uh, but now I don't need that. I, I just pull the compu- computer out yeah. and start working. I've written articles from this. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote an article on First John one nine some years ago, and everything in it came out of logos. Wow! Um, it's it's great for theology study. It's great for topical study. It's great for um, exegesis. It's great for. I, there's a feature on there. I have forty or fifty grammars, Greek and Hebrew grammars. Oh, well. There's a feature on there that will, as you're studying a passage, it will bring up every reference to that passage in any grammar you have. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know about that feature. Oh boy, it's fantastic. I um, probably don't have all the grammar uh, grammars you do. No, but like uh, you know, it's just incredible. Uh, so I, I, I still use accordance, mm-hmm. but it's, um, it's, it's. They're trying to catch up. Yeah. They they came way too late to the game. Hmm. Uh, Logos is way beyond them. They I was looking at the product page on Logos. They now offer twenty nine thousand over twenty nine thousand modules, um, in in sets. And a, mo- a module would be like a books or, or Could things be. like that. Yeah. Um, a. Uh, how can I explain this? Alan Ross's grammar is his commentary on on Psalms mm-hmm. is a one volume commentary, but they've divided it into two modules. One of them is the Bible text as he's translated it, and the other is the commentary. So you put them in parallel and tie them to each other, and it will you go verse by verse in the text, and you go verse by verse in the commentary along with it, along with your Hebrew Bible if you if you know Hebrew. So. How do you, you know, how do you even think about this? It's fantastic. I teach beginning Hebrew with Logos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. It's, uh, it, I just think of how many libraries you can just fit in one computer yeah. now. And, um, yeah, the linking and stuff like that. Well, the former pastor at First of Ann, <clears throat> when he left, he took his library, obviously took his mm-hmm. library with him. And and at that time he was reputed to have ten thousand volumes. I've got thirteen thousand on my computer, hmm. and that doesn't count what I have on on accordance. Yeah. See, so I, I can cross reference. Yeah. Or, or open up. That's right. One. Um. What do you What do you think the future of ministry? If, oh, oh well. Is, sorry, let me back up. Okay. There's another thing you mentioned, and it's. Uh, and it's teaching in Sunday schools, which yeah. you're which you're doing currently. Uh, I know you did when you were you were teaching in Memphis, mm-hmm. and uh, so th- I think a lot of times, sometimes people have this bifurcated view of oh, I've either got to go into academic ministry, and that yeah. excludes any kind of mm-hmm. in- involvement in church. Oh, but but uh, uh, which, yeah, you can respond to that. But um, 
you know, how do you view yourself as, as a churchman and how have yeah. you found ministry opportunity um, within the church yeah. while it's not your paid position? The uh, uh, point of view I have is um, the way you choose a church is not a church that's going to meet your needs. Mm-hmm. You choose a church by a place where you can serve. Um, so <clears throat> I, I look, if, if I'm at a point where I need to go to a new church, as when we moved to Dallas, mm-hmm. we went to a church and, and it's a church that in a lot of ways I would fit very well in. Yeah. And they, when I preached, when I taught on Wednesday nights or on Sunday mornings, they paid me. I couldn't believe it. It was, <laughs> uh, uh, if, if you taught Sunday school, they paid you. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the, the church, though, was just covered over with Bible teaching, so much so that they had Bible classes in the halls at the church. Oh, wow. Uh, so I thought, they don't need me. They got mm-hmm. umpteen people. <laughs> so... When you're willing to pay for Sunday school teachers, <laughs> suddenly there's That's a whole right. lot more Sunday school If you teachers. pay them, they will come. So, <laughs> the, so about that time, the chairman of the Bible department at the seminary was leaving his Sunday school class, hmm. and uh, he was going to plant a church in another town. So I said, uh, I, not knowing he was doing that, I said to him, do you suppose the church where you're working could could use me as a Sunday school teacher. He said, I think they can. I'll, I'll put you in touch with the guy who's over the adult fellowships. The guy called me and he point, he put me into the class that the uh, chair had, had been teaching. So, um, we've been there now 14 years. I, I, I can't, I can't imagine a faculty member at Dallas seminary, not being involved in ministry in a local yeah. church. That just, also in missions, uh, 60 to 70% of our faculty go and do mission work in off-off periods. You've done a lot of work in India. Tell, yeah. so, tell me a little bit about okay. what that is. And Well, I've done two kinds of things over there. One is conference ministry, and the other is teaching at a seminary. Um, there, there was a – Lanier Burns yeah. was the chairman of the American Board for Asian Christian Academy in in South India. And I was coming up for a sabbatical. I was following him to faculty meeting one day and I said, Dr. Burns, could you ever use me in India? And I don't know how well you know him, but he's kind of a <laughs> demonstrative kind of guy. He said, this is the providence of God. This is God at work. <laughs> I kind of was taken back. Uh, they were starting a doctoral program for their faculty. Because they wanted, they were heavily heavily dependent on Western faculty and Western money to run the school, and the school was not accredited. So they wanted to get doctorates for their faculty, so that they could pursue accreditation. That's right. Yeah. So I went over there and taught the first doctoral course in a oh, wow. in a, a doctoral program on on biblical theology, which is one area that that's what my dissertation was. Mm-hmm. So. And then I taught four or five, maybe six courses there. But I've done um, conferences in towns um, last March, maybe. I was in, uh, it, was, it was longer than that, two years ago. I was in, I did a, a week 
conference in each of three cities on the on the east coast of India and uh, taught on pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, to people who were charismatic. And I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm not a charismatic, yeah, <laughs> uh, but was well received. And, and so we'll we're starting now to plan for August going over there again. What are what if any are the differences you find between students in India and students in the states? Oh, <laughs> it's without getting you in too much trouble. No, what I'm going to say is somewhat unfair. Yeah, um, the, the people. I, I, I at times when I come home from India, when I'm getting ready to come home from India, I think, why do I want to go back to Dallas? <laughs> they are they are inundated with Bible teaching. Mm-hmm so much that they can be bored with the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, those folks are, many of them le- leading a really torrid Christian life, really. In, in Dallas? In, in India. Oh, in India. Well, in Dallas, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, but they know so little about the Bible. They know the Bible, its mm-hmm. content, better than you and I do. Yeah. But they don't know what it means. And what I find is when they hear somebody who's not going to be the proud American who's over here to bring light to you who sit in darkness, but also has something to say, they hang on every word. And, oh, my goodness, these dear people. um, I'm I'm always shocked at the response. It's so positive. Um, and I'm not down, I'm not saying anything negative about Dallas seminary students either. (laughs) There's also, you know, there's things I've found and this comes from, I've I've taught in a couple different places and they're they're vastly different countries. One, you know, (laughs) one was in, well, South of the U S border and and one was in a middle Eastern context and I, I think part of it is they're different. Different cultures treat education differently. Uh-huh. I think I think that <laughs> I, I think this quote originates from you. You can adjust it, but uh, somebody once said that uh, Americans are are in education. Americans are willing to pay a whole lot of money for something they hope they don't get. <laughs> was it was that ever originated well, it from came you from or? my stepfather he oh, probably okay. got it from someplace else education is the one thing you pay for and hope you don't get yeah uh, you pay a ton of money and then yeah. don't go to class or don't study yeah um but it's because we have so much mm-hmm. it's easy to you know well okay this is good but that was good too and this is good and you get it's it's like having a french chef as your as your mother or father <laughs> You know, the food is so good, and you, and, yeah. and you, you can't get spoiled. Yeah. Um, in India, it's like having McDonald's every day, and then somebody comes in and brings something really succulent, you know, and it, it's just, it's nothing against McDonald's. It's just saying. Yeah. Well, you can't say steak either because it's India. So. Well, yeah, they don't, <laughs> even the Christians don't like steak. They like, they like chicken. They yeah. think beef smells bad. Hmm. So. That's that's always been a shock to me. Yeah, especially coming out of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> um, Some of the best steak I've ever, ever had is in India, though. Oh, really? Oh, the Muslims can cook steak in their restaurants. If you ever get to India, go to a Muslim restaurant. You'll get well, a great steak. 
you'll you'll have to take me if there are ever any extra teaching opportunities <laughs> over there. Um, so have you thought about possibly doing that whenever you finish up at Dallas is spending more time overseas? Well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. When when I leave Dallas, it'll probably be because I can't continue. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we'll probably move back to Memphis because we have family here. But I'll still want to teach if I'm able. Yeah. Um, just having to figure out what that would look like. Yeah. So, um, any parting word or advice to people in ministry or considering ministry? Um, when my mentor passed away, they invited me to come and speak at his memorial service. Uh, they had, I forgot, seven speakers. Oh, gosh. And uh, as he said about— As somebody who organizes funeral, that, that just sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> as he said about one of them, and it turned out to be too, true of two of them, uh, he lacks terminal facilities. <laughs> he can't, it doesn't know <laughs> when to stop. That's right. So I was, I think, number seven, and I was supposed Uh-oh. to give a sermon. I'm sitting there through 45 minutes of one guy and 30 minutes of oh, another gosh. guy. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I thought they, these people need to get it. It, it. The thing went over two hours. Oh, God. And it was at lunchtime. Yeah. People had to get up and leave because they had to go yeah. back to work. And so I thought, I'm going to quote the one verse that my mentor, Dr. Roger R. Clapp, quoted over and over again the 18 years I was here in Memphis. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, <clears throat> what these people don't know is that I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight is in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> See how insightful that is. <laughs> but took the, a doctorate to get That's able right, to took a doctorate at Dallas Seminary to figure that out. They, but the point is, something I had to learn in hard experience at the seminary. And I still don't know all the logic of it. But from Paul's point of view, the resurrection makes all of our service meaningful. Um, when S. Lewis Johnson died, he was, he was a star in the faculty at Dallas when I was there. When he died... All of us, there were his his service was packed out. I mean, it was just jammed. And I looked around. I didn't know most of the people, but uh, I knew a lot of them were his former students. And uh, I thought all of us wanted at least five books from him. wanted a, wanted a really extensive book on use of the Old Testament and the New. And he always said, if you understand John, Romans, the Hebrews, and Revelation you will essentially understand the theology of the New Testament. Hmm. So we wanted those five and one more. He was actually working on a systematic theology when he passed away. And as I sat there, I thought, he didn't didn't publish anything but that little thin book on use of the Old Testament Hmm. he knew. What a loss. Um, And all of us, would have wanted his books, but I know myself, I would have bought them and they would sit on the shelf and I'd probably never read them. I'd consult them from time to time, but never read through the book. 
and they'd be on the shelf in the library, but nobody will ever check them out because nobody now knows who S. Lewis Johnson was. Hmm. So what good is it? All that learning that he had, he was kind of a Renaissance man. And then I thought, no, it's not a loss because he served us and we're serving the next generation. He said to us one day in class, my goal for you men is that by the time you reach my age, you will know more than I. But lest you grow, you become puffed up and arrogant in your knowledge. By then I will be in heaven and I will know more than you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot to that. The, the goal of a teacher should be to help the students get up on his shoulders so that they can reach higher and farther than he can. Because others have put me up on their shoulders, and I've been able to reach farther and higher than they could. So that means I can't be very arrogant, because I depend on too many behind me. Hmm. And yet, I'm pouring into lives that are going to touch people. Who knows how long? Yeah. And so, be steadfast. The resurrection. Be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God leaves nothing of our service fruitless. He always rewards it with everlasting fruit. I don't know it now. I don't know what it is now, but I'm convinced the scripture has said so. I got to live my life that way. That's a good word. Jim, thanks so much sure. for, for sitting well, down and well, speaking with us. Well, thanks for giving us. me this opportunity. <laughs> well, hey, maybe this will be passed on to other people we don't know about. <laughs> so, again, thanks so much. Okay. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate, appreciate you so it. much. Thank you. If this podcast has been encouraging to you, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at survivingministrypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, congratulations. You survived this podcast.